So our scripture reading this morning is from Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 35. Uh, This is found on page 857 in your pew Bibles. Uh, And each week we say, hey, if if you don't own a Bible or if you know somebody who needs a Bible, uh, we'd love for you to take that one home and, uh, and, and it's a gift from us. So here's God's word. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of the Lord, or the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what had been said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning to each of you, and Merry Christmas. It's so, go, uh, so good to see each one of you here. We're so glad that you're here with us as we uh, come to the end of the Advent season and approach uh, Christmas here in just a couple more days. And as we uh, hear from God's Word today, I want to begin by asking for God to be at work in our midst through His Spirit, allowing us to hear it afresh and for it to become living and active in our hearts and our lives as we Uh, spend time uh, looking at this passage that Dan's just read for us. So let's do that now. Father in heaven, uh, I thank you uh, for um, your light that has come down from heaven and invaded the world that is full of darkness, and that you've called us to that light. I pray that now by the power of your Holy Spirit, uh, who is present with us, indeed in us, uh, those who have placed our trust and faith in Jesus, would we see the light of Jesus clearly this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, during this Advent season, we've spent uh, time looking and thinking about waiting. Advent is a season of waiting. We've, we've talked a lot about hope. We've talked about lightness, light and darkness. We've, we've talked about the fact that, that hope and peace are breaking into the world, a world that is full of often hopelessness and peacelessness. So we've talked in this Advent season a lot about what Christmas is for, 
But we haven't yet talked a whole lot yet about who Christmas is for. We've talked about what it's for, but not necessarily as much about who it's for. So this morning, I want to ask the question, who is Christmas for? And maybe as you think about that question, we could answer that and say, well, you know, Christmas is really just for kind of those sentimentalists who just love a good family tradition and kind of the warm fuzzies of the holidays or or, you know, if we're being honest, we could say, frankly, is, is Christmas really just kind of for, for fools who still kind of believe that Jesus story long after they should have kind of grown out of it? Kind of like that couple in the SNL sketch, Santa Baby, you know, they hold on to that belief in Santa. Or is Christmas really just for the economists, right, who, who love this time of year, good fourth quarter earning reports for all those retail outlets? Is it just for, for Jeff Bezos and Amazon? Because, I mean, they are doing well this time of year. I mean, that Amazon truck comes to our house like two or three times a day right now, I feel like. Um, or is it really just Christmas just for the kids, right? It's time for them to, to get some new gifts, to take some time off of school, um, who is Christmas for? And is it actually for you? Is it for me? Is it, is it for us? Because I think we all know, we've all had the experience at some time in our life of, of being excluded, of being left out. Right? You are scrolling through your Instagram feed and you see a picture of your friends gathered together somewhere and you're like, wait a second, I, I, I didn't get invited to that. Or maybe there's a team at work that you wanted to be a part of that you weren't selected for, or a coworker happy hour that you didn't get invited to, or maybe you feel excluded in your life because of your gender, or maybe because of your ethnicity, or your skin tone, or your age, or your financial means, or your marital status. Who is Christmas for? Well, this morning we're going to look at one of the less familiar Christmas stories in the Bible and how it answers that question. Uh, how the gospel writer Luke, as he unfolds the story in this passage that we heard read, answers the question, who is Christmas for? Is it for people like me, for people like us? Let's walk through this story together, and I invite you, if you haven't done so already, to turn in your Bible or in one of the few Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Now, the Bible, if you're uh, newer to it, is uh, made up of two big sections. You have the Old Testament and then the New Testament, and uh, Luke is in the New Testament. It's the fourth book, the fourth chunk into the New Testament. So, you have Matthew, Mark, and then Luke, and this is Luke chapter 2, and the story begins in verse 22. It's, again, it's on 857 in your pew Bible. And as the scene opens in Luke chapter 2, verse 22, we're no longer in Bethlehem where Jesus was born, but now we're in Jerusalem. So already Luke in his narrative and his telling of the story has moved us from the place of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem now to Jerusalem, the place where Jesus' story will end at the end of the Gospel of Luke with his death and his resurrection. And now instead of a manger, we're in the temple. And the temple was the center of Jewish worship life together in this time. And Luke connects these two stories. They're only six weeks apart, but this is a dramatic scene change in the narrative. And in Luke chapter 2, verse 22, as that scene opens with Mary and Joseph, a few verses later, we meet a man named Simeon, an old man who had spent his entire life waiting. 
and we know nothing about him prior to this story. He isn't mentioned anywhere uh, prior to this, and he's not mentioned anywhere after this either. And in fact, he is only mentioned in Luke's gospel. He's not in Matthew or Mark or John. He's only here in these few verses for Luke. These are kind of his 15 minutes on the stage of God's story. It's so obscure, yet Rembrandt, the the painter in the 1600s, painted this scene three different times over the course of his life. Of all of the, the scenes and moments in Scripture, Rembrandt chose to paint this one three different times all the things he could have painted. And he painted this one, this is the final one that he painted, uh, before he died. He actually didn't finish it. Um, it may, I wonder if that's maybe why Simeon looks so old and worn, if that was a little bit of a reflection of, of Rembrandt, even as he painted it. So, I mean, maybe if you're looking at this picture, you're saying, Bill, is, it, uh, is Christmas just for old men who look like Santa? Is that the answer uh, that we're going for this morning? Well, no. Let me read to you who Simeon is. Verse 25, take a closer look at what it says there. It says, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout. And I just want to pause there as I'm reading the Scripture to say, sometimes I think when we hear righteous and devout, we don't think of someone we'd want to be friends with. But that language of righteousness in the Old Testament in particular talks about someone who's living a really good life, who has great relationships, who's seeking justice, who has a good relationship with God, who loves their neighbors well. This is exactly the kind, this is not a self-righteous person. This is a generous, loving person who you'd want to have as a neighbor, who you'd want to be, have as a mentor, as a friend. This is a righteous and devout man waiting for the consolation of Israel. That is kind of the hope. That idea of consolation is the thing that's coming, the hope for Israel. It says the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now, we've been walking through these early chapters of the Gospel of Luke here, and we're going to continue studying the Gospel of Luke into 2020. And I want to highlight that Luke in particular notes and points out and kind of thematizes the work of the Holy Spirit more than any of the other Gospel writers. And you see it even here in Simeon's story. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, verse 26, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And Simeon had been waiting his entire life for this moment. His entire life. In, in, in the Old Testament, uh, there is this language of the anointed one. It's where we, it's the Hebrew word Mashiach. It's actually, that's where we get the word Messiah from. And when it says the end of verse 26, he had seen before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Uh, again, Christ is not Jesus's last name. It's another, it's a title for, it's the, uh, the Greek way of saying the anointed one. This is the anointed one. Now in the Old Testament, two kinds of people were anointed, kings and priests. And Simeon has been waiting for the ultimate priest and the one true king, the one true Mashiach, the one true Messiah, the Christ to arrive. And somehow the Holy Spirit had made known to Simeon that he wouldn't die until he had seen this person, this one true Messiah, arrive. Luke doesn't tell us how the Holy Spirit made that known to him or, or when. Like, I, I wonder, right? When did, Luke, or excuse me, when did, when did uh, Simeon first know this news? When he was 20, 30, 40? I don't know. When did he first get this insight from the Spirit that he wouldn't die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah? 
And I wonder if in all those years of waiting, if he ever wondered if he'd misunderstood. Maybe God meant it in kind of a more of a metaphorical way, or maybe God, maybe I misheard. Maybe, maybe he didn't actually say it. And some of you have been waiting a long time too, right? Waiting for God to make good on a promise. You feel like you haven't seen him do that work in your life yet. Maybe some of you are waiting for healing. Been sick for a long time, dealing with chronic pain. You, you just want it to go away. Maybe it's, maybe it's mental health you've been struggling with. And, and maybe most people don't even know, but you, you know, and it, and it weighs on you. Maybe it's just a dream that you've longed to see become a reality. Again, Advent is a season where we lean into the waiting. Sometimes you've been waiting for a long time. But for Simeon, the the waiting is over because suddenly there in the temple he sees a baby. And his eyes were old, but they were not mistaken, right? Just as some kind of crowd is coming through, he sees this baby, just some random baby, just some parents holding these, these two small birds, the, the meager sacrifice reserved for the, for the working poor, the working class who, who couldn't afford the more expensive sacrifice. But Simeon sees them in the hustle of the temple, in the midst of the crowds rushing around. The place would have been packed, yet Simeon locks in on this baby, right? Picture our campus if you were here a couple Saturdays ago for the jazz concert, right? Everything is packed, and there's all this noise and talking and, and people moving all about, or, or maybe the, the 4.30 Christmas Eve service where this place is just packed out. That's the temple, and there's lots of people, lots of kids, and yet Simeon zooms in. He sees this one baby. And nobody else notices this poor family and their six-week-old. The, the priests don't notice. The Pharisees don't notice. The, the scribes, the masses of God's people there to worship Him, they don't see. They don't see that God in flesh Emmanuel, God with us, has arrived at the temple. This, this hit me kind of for the first time studying the story that, that Jesus, God incarnate, God himself, is in the temple building where God's presence has dwelled in the midst of Israel. What an incredible moment. God is here in the arms of a teenage peasant girl in the temple where God's presence dwells here as a baby. But most everyone there that day, they miss it. They don't see it. And why would they? Just some random baby, some poor family. But Simeon sees. Simeon sees. Why? Because he has spent his entire life longing for this moment. He's been watching. So who is Christmas for? Well, Simeon shows us that Christmas is, at least Christmas is for those who long for it, for those who watch for it. And that's what the season of Advent is all about. It's about cultivating this sense of longing, a longing for the Savior to come, of of reminding ourselves that there is more to this world than meets the eye, that there's more to this world that we can see and taste and touch, reminding ourselves that a Savior is needed and the Savior has come and is coming. And yet we're so often busy during this time of year. I mean, some of you might even be uh, on Amazon right now ordering those last, that prime shipping window is closing. I get it. Um, right now, because the holiday season is coming. It's busy, right? We're finishing up school, wrapping presents, cooking, packing, getting ready to travel, all of that. And in the moments, maybe when we do get in touch with the longing, 
And, and that longing often it feels like disappointment or sadness, maybe even anxiety. But those are all, all pointers that we are longing for something for the world to be made right, signs that it isn't how it's supposed to be, that, that we're longing for it to be different than it is. In those moments when we do begin to feel that twinge of longing, uh, rather than, than stopping and, and leaning into it and letting that turn us into to a place of, of seeking God's presence so much, and, and I'm, 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 I'm here with you, all of this, in this so much, is, it's just easier to, to write, to, to turn on the TV or make a drink. Or turn up the Christmas music just a little bit louder. Or pull out your phone and scroll your feed. Again, over the course of his life, Simeon surely felt disappointment. Like the promise was never going to come true. But he turned those moments of longing, or those moments of waiting, those moments of, of pain or disappointment into moments of longing. Longing that kept him looking looking for a Savior who would come. Christmas is for those who long for it. And so in the temple, Simeon sees this baby, and, and he runs up to them, right? He sees Mary and Joseph. He runs to them. And I, I wonder if, if you're Mary and Joseph, just try to imagine yourself in their shoes for a moment, in that moment of Simeon running up to them. Mary's a teenage girl. Jesus is six weeks old. When we, we know that because the timing of when they would have been coming to present this, this sacrifice at the temple. And again, if you've known any parents along the way who had six-week-old babies, you know they're not incredibly well-rested, right? They've probably not slept for all in at least six weeks now. And they're probably just walking walked three hours from Bethlehem to Jerusalem, and they grew up in small town, kind of rural Israel, and here they are in the big city of Jerusalem, bleary-eyed, overwhelmed, when this crazy old-looking man runs up to them and grabs their baby. Like, I wonder how Mary responded to that moment. Did she hesitate or panic? Uh, did she look to Joseph in fear? Did she just try to remember the, the number for Amber Alert in that moment? And Simeon, he grabs their baby out of Mary's arms and, 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 and starts singing, right? Because strangers are supposed to tell you how cute your kids look, not grab them and start making up a song about them and singing it loud for all to hear. But that's what Simeon does in his song. It must have been strange to them to hear. Simeon takes Jesus in his arm, he blesses God, and he sings, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light to the Gentiles and the glory to your people, Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. I bet they did in that moment. Can you imagine? And I wonder if the thing they, they marveled at most of all was perhaps this line that Simeon says in there, a light to the Gentiles. Uh, here's Rembrandt's second painting of that scene between Simeon and the parents, and, and you can see how he depicts it. It's literally there, there's light coming from Jesus lighting up the room. Jesus is literally filling the painting with light, a light to the Gentiles. And what that means is that Jesus has come for everyone. Now, we kind of hear that, and if we've been around church, we expect that, of course, Jesus is here for everyone. We don't necessarily marvel at that reality. And again, most of us here, we are ethnically Gentiles. We are not Jewish people. 
So kind of, we expect to be included. But imagine Simeon, a Jew in the first century, singing these words. Simeon's whole life had been one that was oppressed by Gentiles, by Rome. The Romans occupied Israel, taxed them heavily, controlled everything. I mean, Simeon, he probably knew people who had been crucified by the Roman Empire. The Romans were despised, unwanted Gentiles. And Simeon praises God that Christmas is for them too. That Jesus came for them too. So who is Christmas for? Uh, Yes, Christmas is for those who long for it. Yes, absolutely. But it's also for those, even especially for those who don't belong according to our categories. Because there was no one the Israelites hated more than the Romans at the time of Jesus' birth. But, but Jesus came for those who we think don't belong. And this has always been the plan for the beginning. We started this year as a church in the book of Genesis. And we look back to Genesis chapter 12 when God calls Abraham and he makes this promise that he's going to bless Abraham's family and that through Abraham's family, the whole world will be blessed. That somehow through Abraham's family, that everyone is going to have an opportunity to become a child of God, to enter into a relationship with Him. And now that plan is coming to fullness in Jesus. So this morning, I wonder, who are the Gentiles to you? The Democrats? The Republicans? People who are too political, those who aren't political enough? Pastors who pointed out the educated, the uneducated, Muslims, immigrants, the LGBTQ community, people with money, people without money, millennials, those who are older than you, those who are younger than you, kids who go to public school, kids who go to private school, kids who go to homeschool, those who live east of truce, those who live west of truce, those who live in Missouri, those who live in Kansas, whatever the lines are, that divide us, that separate us, whoever ends up in that category of them or those. And I don't know if you've noticed this over the years here at Brookside, but we're we're fairly homogeneous in this room, right? Not not necessarily with age or income. Um, We have some diversity in those categories or education. But in ethnicity, it's a pretty white room, isn't it? And if you were to draw a a circle, a two-mile radius around our building, you know, we don't reflect the diversity of that two-mile circle in this room. We don't reflect God's kingdom ultimately of every tongue and tribe and nation and ethnicity and people group gathering together to worship Him. What would it take for that to change? Because we're missing out if we don't experience that together. We've got so much to learn, and one of the areas that I'm beginning to realize is just so fundamental, it's so basic, right? But one thing I'm learning in this area is that I cannot expect our church to magically become more ethnically diverse here on Sunday morning if during the week all of my friendships, all of my recreation time, all of my shopping, and all the people who we have over to our home look exactly like me. That if the rest of my life isn't filled with these kind of relationships with people who are different than me, that Sunday's not going to just somehow magically, that's going to happen. 
one of the questions I'm wrestling with at the end of this year is how can I break out of those bubbles that I so often spend my time in? I encourage you to think through that as well. Maybe one simple next step in that is just to attend the underground uh, performance. Go experience that bit of our, of our history. And better yet, invite someone different than yourself to attend with you and discuss it together. Because how we engage the other, whoever that is for us, is how we engage Jesus. And the key thing to keep in mind here is that all of us are other to Him. We've all rejected Him. We are all the other when it comes to Jesus, and yet He has welcomed us, has given His life to be able to accept us and open His arms wide to welcome us in. And in light of that, how can we not do the same for others? That's who Christmas is for, or for those who feel like they don't belong, who we feel like don't belong. Well, in this moment, as Simeon is, is holding Jesus, and having held him in his arms, he, he basically says, I can die now. I can go in peace. Lord, let your servant depart in peace. I can leave this life now because I have seen and received the one person who I was created for, indeed the person who created me. That was another thing that just, I couldn't get over this week as I was studying the text, that Simeon is there holding the very one who spoke the world, the universe, into existence. The one who made him, who breathed the breath of life into humans now being held by a human, is himself a human. And Simeon says in that moment, I'm done now. I can go. And I wonder, what are you waiting for in your life? What is the thing that, that you're waiting for that would let you say, I'm good. I can go in peace now. I don't need anything else. I'm done. Is it a relationship, maybe? Uh, maybe, you, maybe you've longed to be married and it hasn't come. Or, or maybe you're in a marriage that you wish was different, was really different. As a pastor over the years, I, I'm not sure which pain is, is worse. They're just different. The pain of, of longing to be married and not being married or the pain of being in a marriage that is, that is crumbling. Or maybe that thing that would just let you say, I can go now, I've, I've, I've got it, I've received it. Maybe it's a child. Maybe you've longed for a child, right? We're, there's so many uh, people in the life stage, in our congregation right now, who are having children, which is amazing. But I think sometimes we forget that, that nearly for every family that's having a child, there's probably another couple sitting in these pews, and I know them, who I know you, who long for a child but who haven't been able to have one. Uh, maybe it's a, a career goal, an educational goal. If I could just complete this degree or get this job or, or attain this position or make partner or whatever it might be, that then, then I could depart in peace. Or maybe it's making it to retirement. What is that one thing now, every one of those things that I've mentioned here, they're incredibly good in and of themselves, but if, if you subtly make those things the point of your whole life, 
You will come to the end and you will be disappointed and sad and bitter because they will not deliver. They cannot deliver what you want, what you ultimately long for, which is why we have to learn from Simeon, learn from him that what will allow us to depart in peace is not something we achieve, but someone we receive. Not something we achieve, but someone we receive. The thing that will allow you to depart this life in peace. And, you know, as Dickens reminds us this year, a Christmas carol, right, every year that death is coming for us all, right? The thing that will allow us to depart in peace is not something you achieve, not a goal you meet, but someone, a person that you receive. So who is Christmas for? Yes, Christmas is for those who long for it. Christmas is even for, especially for those who don't belong. But ultimately, Christmas is for those who see and receive Jesus, for those who see and receive Him. You know, and it's probably likely that Simeon didn't live much longer after this. He had reached the end of his life. He had seen the Savior. He had seen God's salvation held him in his arms. And then probably not long after that, he died. And what I love about Simeon is the way he would be remembered in, in church history is as Simeon Theodokus. That was how he was remembered Simeon Theodokus, and Theodokus is a Greek word. You can actually see it on that little icon there. It's a, I have a red box around it there. That word means God receiver. That was how Simeon was remembered in the history of the church, the one who held the Savior, who received the Savior in his arms. Simeon, the God receiver. The one who saw and received the Savior. Will that be said of you, of us? Because you see, salvation, life, rescue, abundant life in this life and life that is everlasting is first and foremost about seeing and savoring and receiving Jesus. Yes, there is a way of Jesus to be followed. Yes, there are practices to be put in place. Yes, there is costly obedience. All of that is true. But if you endeavor to do all those things for their own sake, without seeing and savoring Jesus, you will just end up in a life of pointless religiosity. It's about seeing and receiving Him. That's what makes you change. That's when you're, you find life. That's when, when all of this religion and Christianity stuff begins to, to make sense for what it really is. It's a relationship with the person. Because that is the point of all of the spiritual disciplines and practices and habits that we build into our life to pursue God, of, of Bible reading, of prayer, of, of uh, silence and solitude and quiet and serving and generosity. All of those things are ways of pushing back the distractions and focusing our attention so that we can see and receive and glory in Jesus. To delight in the one who has made you, the only one who can set you free, the only one who can let you go in peace. But friends, we live in an incredibly challenging moment in which to see and receive Jesus right now. And it's not because we live in a culture that is increasingly less religious in its cultural expression. You know, that's part of it. 
But I think we live in an incredibly challenging cultural moment because our lifestyle and our cultural moment conspire against us to almost create sort of a giant do not disturb button on what Jesus wants to do in your life. You know, because you, you can take on your phone and put that do not disturb setting on, right? And none of your text messages alert you. Your phone calls stop coming through. And the way that our lives have been ordered and the pacing of them is in such a way that it's almost like we've turned on a do not disturb button to what Jesus longs to do in our lives. He can't make it through the noise and distraction. He's calling, texting, but you aren't receiving the messages because we're too distracted. Could it be the reason that you so often feel distant from God is, is not that He hasn't drawn near to you, but that He's, he's desperately drawing near to you. But you have not given the energy and time and most of all the attention to drawing near to Him. I'm increasingly convinced that distraction is the greatest enemy to seeing and receiving Jesus. We can see all the TV shows, work through all of our Netflix queues, travel the world, curate the best Insta feed, work tirelessly to afford the lifestyle that we think will be making us happy, but in the end, miss the one person who matters most. So here's just one strategy to fight distraction in this season. Justin Early suggests this in his helpful little book, The Common Rule, Habits of Purpose for an Age of Distraction. He, he suggests and calls for the adoption of a practice of turning your phone off, of powering your phone down for an hour each day. Just turning it off. And I've been doing this now for about a month. I typically turn it off when I get home from work at the end of the day uh, and then kind of through dinner in the time, and sometimes it's more than an hour, of putting the kids to bed. Now, for a number of years, I've had the practice of when a guy got home just taking my phone out of my pocket and setting it on a shelf and, you know, not carrying it around. It's not physically impressive. But let me tell you, there is something qualitatively different about it being off. Because you can't just walk over and pick it up. Nothing comes through. You are out of contact. It is a different experience. It's been changing subtly the patterns of life. It's allowed me to be more present and focused not only to the people God has called me to love the most, my family, but also to Jesus. So try it for a week. Pick it up for an hour and, and turn it off. And, and for some of you, this will be the first time, if you do this, you've actually made a conscious choice to turn your phone off. Lots of you had your phone die on you and gone through that crisis. But how many of you, because you can turn it on airplane mode, you don't have to turn it off on the plane anymore. How many of you actually when was the last time you actually chose to turn your phone off? Other than maybe to restart it when it's not working. Try it. I know it seems crazy, and that's why you should do it. <laughs> and for some of you, you're like, well, okay, maybe that's fine for Justin Early. I'm sure he's a, a pastor of some, you know, rural church, and there's not that many people who want to get a hold of him anyway. That's fine for him. But no, this is one of the things I love about that book, actually, is that Justin Early's not a pastor. Uh, he's a mergers and acquisition attorney for an international firm with clients in different time zones around the world, and yet he has said, it's important enough to me to do this practice that sometimes I have to email people before I do it and say, hey, I'm not going to be available for the next hour. Don't miss 
seeing and receiving Jesus because you were too distracted. We don't want to miss Jesus because we were satisfied making mud pies in the alleys of distraction when the glory and joy and satisfaction and peace of a holiday at the beach in God's presence awaits us. If only we can banish distraction for long enough to pay attention to him, to see him and receive him. May we be known, friends, May our legacy be as those who are God receivers like Simeon, who saw and received him, and who therefore can go in peace because we have seen the Lord's salvation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you grant that each and every one of us would be remembered as Theodokos, as God receivers, who hopefully, expectantly open ourselves to your presence. People who expect God to show up when we pay attention, who long for you, who welcome all people who find our satisfaction in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.